But I do see the value of being God conscious all the time. One reason for that is if I'm really aware that God is real um, as I attend to things in my environment, I'm much less likely to be a jerk. Welcome back to The Current Podcast, and on this week's episode, we are joined by Rabbi Dr. Sam Liebens, author of the new book, A Guide for the Jewish Undecided, and we are going to ask him our question for this new series, Al Regal Achat, to teach us the Torah while standing on one leg. Here is our conversation with Rabbi Dr. Sam Liebens. So we are delighted to be joined here in the Corrin offices in Jerusalem by Sam Liebens. Thank you so much for joining us, Sam. Thank you. And we'll get started with, of course, our first question for this season, which is, can you teach us the Torah, Al Regal Achat? Standing on one leg. No. <laughs> okay, I'll... Uh, thanks for joining us. <laughs> That's all for this week. <laughs> um, I, would, I would say that my Torah, Aregel Achat, is um, probably something like, be kind, be humble, and love God. Um, and the humility I have in, in mind is particularly a kind of intellectual humility. Um, n- not thinking that you know everything <clears throat> and recognizing that even the things you think you know you might be wrong about. Which is a uh, appropriately philosophical answer um, <laughs> for a, a professional philosopher. Um, <laughs> it's so, called fallibilism. <laughs> well, there you, okay, there you go. Um, so, I mean, how, how do we get it? I, I, I guess it would be helpful to frame our conversation and, mm-hmm. and for the listener, um, sort of where are you coming from? You know, what, what's your background? How do you get? To, how did you get to the point where your Torah is <laughs> humility, kindness, kindness, and love and, of God? And love of God. Um, well, the, the the love of God thing, I think, is just because um, I, I'm a theist, and I was a theist before I was uh, a religious Jew, um, because I, I grew up. Um, a traditional, uh, what, what some people in America would describe as kind of conservadox, because we belonged to an orthodox synagogue, we drove most weeks to shul, as we passed the orthodox rabbi on the street, as he was walking, we'd duck. Um, so the, the rabbis in Leicester, England, used to think that they were self-driving cars, because even, <laughs> even, even the driver was kind of ducking down. Um, and we'd like walk the last block, you know, as if, as if. Um, so we weren't particularly religious, but, but, um, I think I always had almost a native and, and in a sense, quite naive theism, a, a, a sense of, of living in the company of a quite personal God who, who, uh, loves us and, uh, cares for us. Um, and I, I had that, like I said, before, before Torah came into my life in, in, a, in, a, in a meaningful way or, 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 a, or a kind of robust way, and also before I got into academic philosophy. Um, the the uh, humility thing, I think, is because... So then, okay, so then I become religious around the age of 13, really. Uh, my bar mitzvah, and it's a slow progress a process from 13 to 18, and I go to yeshiva, and then... Um, I did philosophy at university and I did a PhD in philosophy and, and, and so on. And, and, and in my adult life, I've always been combining or balancing a kind of rabbinic, uh, rabbinic learning, rabbinic teaching with, with uh, academic philosophy. And I think sometimes I was shocked by what looked like the lack of love of God and 
the lack of epistemic humility, epistemic humility being that, that epistemology is a study of belief and knowledge. So mm. epistemic humility is about humility about what you know and, and how much you understand. And it always kind of shocked me because um, I think I was naive enough to think that, you know, r- people who are religiously observant would all be very God conscious. Um, But it's not always the case. And I don't mean to be sounding really judgmental because there are lots of people who really are and much more than I am uh, God conscious. But I I was surprised the extent to which for some people um, observant Judaism was, was quite mechanical. Um, So that, that is part of how I came to to think, no, hold on a second. Like, um, God has to be front and center in our in our observance. It's about God ultimately, um, and the humility thing is that I sometimes felt like I remember being in a in a, a course of shiurim in yeshiva when I was uh, eighteen, nineteen years old. And in the first week, he showed how Christianity was stupid. In the second week, he showed how Islam was stupid. In the third week, how like Buddhism was stupid. And then he <laughs> spoke about how great Judaism was. And I was like, What do you know about these? These are like these are great faiths that have had many, many geniuses, right, subscribe to them, endorse them. I don't believe they're true, but to think they're stupid. And then, and then I, I came to think that, well, actually, if that's, if that's his attitude and if he can think that he understands the world so well, there's actually something sacrilegious about his Judaism too because it, it makes it sound as if he's understood the whole Torah, as if the Torah is something that, that you know, God's will or God's, you know... Um, God's wisdom is something that you know a single human being can can completely understand and master and I think that's a kind of arrogance that that also struck me as antithetical to true religiosity so um so those are the some of the things that kind of experienced that and the the be kind is you know that goes back to you know Hillel Azaken when he was asked about what you know tell me the Torah on one foot you know ultimately the Torah is interested in and as Rabbi Sachs said you know Torah means instruction and he says that there's there's no, there's no section of the Torah that's included merely for narrative or historical purposes. Every single verse, Rabbi Sachs said, is is included to instruct us how to live better and how to be kinder, nicer, more just. Now, I don't really understand how that works for the genealogies in Parshat Noah, right. but but that's what he said. I mean, I'd be interested to sort of drill down a bit into this idea, like this this shira that you went to, where he talks about. Um, you know, I think we often hear the argument from outside of the theist world, you know, mm. from it's, it seems like a very atheist argument um, to say, you know, like what you how do you know that Judaism's true? Mm. You know, how or how can a Christian say with such confidence that everyone else is wrong? Mm. Um, and so an atheist might say, well, you know, every, just because you were born in India and you were raised a Hindu, that doesn't you never given a chance to become Jewish or Christian or whatever. Um, so how how does how do you sort of synthesize it how do you reconcile and as a theist and Mm. from a point of view that like you know everyone else has got something to offer Mm. then why be jewish good so 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 i've written a book about that (laughs) (laughs) how interesting uh yeah it was published by these really (laughs) lovely people in jerusalem um um in a nutshell, a regal achat, right? Oh, I see how this works. In a nutshell, the the idea of the book says that, um, first of all, outside of any religion, I think there are really good reasons to think that God exists. Okay. Now, I don't think those reasons are 
are like overwhelmingly compelling. I don't think there are any proofs that God exists. But I think, as I kind of put it in the book, I can at least kind of give you 50-50 odds. I can at least show you, you know, there is some strong, there's some strong counter evidence to the hypothesis that an all-powerful, all-loving God exists, namely evil and injustice, suffering and pain in the world, you know, out of proportion to what one would imagine if, if the theistic hypothesis were true. That's serious counter evidence. However, on the other side, I think there's a great deal of evidence that such a being does exist and uh, you know at least enough for us to take it seriously as a live mm -hmm. possibility that there is a god now once you've accepted that i think it's i think we should we should also accept something that you know moses mendelssohn pointed out um years before me that if if god is good and reasonable and let me just say in parenthesis if god isn't good and reasonable then he probably wouldn't be worthy of our worship or our service anyway so if there's a God who's, who's worthy of our worship and service, a God who is good and reasonable, then he couldn't condition our salvation on doing things or believing things which are practically irrational for us to do or believe given the circumstances of our birth. So I argue in the book that there's good reason to think that if you're born into a Jewish society and you have a Jewish family and a Jewish community and then for reasons beyond your control, you've been born into a situation where unless you have a huge amount of evidence that Christianity is true or Hinduism is true, it's very costly to convert to any of those religions because you're going to alienate your family, all these things that really matter to a human flourishing life. And therefore, it, it, you know, if any God worthy of worship does exist, that God couldn't be conditioning your salvation on 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 doing something that practically irrational. I think that's a real problem for some forms of Christianity and Islam that, that do seem to um, believe that our salvation hangs upon, you know, did you convert? But, but by the way, that's not all forms of Christianity or all forms of Islam. Some of them are, are quite sensitive to the problems we're talking about here too. Um, so, so I would say if you were born a Jew, okay, and it turns out that Judaism's true, then God could be a little bit upset, right? That you didn't even take a punt on Judaism being true, okay? Uh, but if you were born, uh, you know, a Christian or you were born a Hindu uh, and Judaism's true, then it's uh, less likely that God could be too upset with those people unless they were pr provided with an overwhelming amount of evidence, like a Harsini type experience. Perhaps God could be upset with with Yitro, with Jethro in the Bible, if he if he if he weren't to accept the truth of Judaism. Mm something like that. Although in Judaism, it's complicated because a, a Gentile, there's kind of two stages that a Gentile might go through. One is to start to believe that Judaism's true, and that's lovely, and they can become a Ben Noach. And then the second is to convert. And that, that's not compulsory even for the Gentiles that believe in Judaism. Mm -hmm. right? So that's an interesting detail about Judaism. But in a nutshell, that's, that's, that's kind of the philosophical project of the book is to respond to the problem you raised, which is like, well, uh, you know, if there is no certainty, and if you know you knew that if you were born a Sikh, you may have been a religious Sikh, then isn't it just stupid that you're committing? Well, no, it's not stupid. You know, there probably is a God, okay? And uh, serving and worshipping that God makes sense. Um, and the, the, the safest bet on how to do that um, might vary from, culture, from, from situation to situation. And in the situation in which Jews are, are born, most of them, many of them, 
the safest bet is is uh, to to um, serve and worship them as Judaism suggests we should. Now, even that I think would be perhaps irrational if there was super good reason for thinking that Judaism is false. But there isn't. On the contrary, mm. there are some good reasons for thinking it's true. I don't think the reasons are good enough to compel a Christian or a Hindu or a Muslim, but they're good enough that, you know, for us to take seriously, especially in the cultural context in which we three people find ourselves. Mm. I want to ask you a little about um, your friend or our friend, uh, Baruch Pascal. Oh, yes. Uh, tell us a little bit about how, how, kind of how he came into your story, how he came into the story of the yeah. book, and, and, and kind of what the background is. Uh, I, I was going to bring him with me, but he said I, he said I could speak on his behalf. <laughs> um, I have been doing that ever since he was created. Um, so, so there was Blaise Pascal, uh, French Enlightenment figure, really important uh, philosopher, mathematician, uh, one of the, the kind of founders of decision theory, um, which is relevant to the, the book itself, because decision theory is about, you know, how, how do you make rational decisions when you don't have all the evidence, for example? Okay. Um, and Pascal is perhaps most famous, though unfairly, because there are other things he should be famous for, but he is perhaps most famous for what's known as Pascal's Wager. Mm. And Pascal's Wager, um, as, as caricatured by many, says, um, and, and by me uh, in, in the book, uh, I'll, I'll explain what, why I say it's a caricature in a minute, but, but, but anyway, the, the, the caricature is as follows. Um, you can either bet on Catholicism or on atheism, says, says this caricatured Pascal. And uh, if Catholicism turns out to be true and you bet on Catholicism by living a Catholic life, you stand to win a great deal, right? Heaven and all that stuff. But if you bet on atheism and Catholicism was true, you could be in real trouble, like hell or, or at least limbo or, or whatever. Um, and if you bet on atheism and atheism was true, wow, you still didn't win, right? Not all that much. Your life wasn't necessarily all that much more enjoyable than the Catholic's life. And you, you don't benefit from an after, you know, an atheist afterlife. You just stop being. Um, so he goes through what the decision theory is called the decision, the decision theoretical matrix of this bet on either Catholicism or atheism. And he says, like, it's like a no brainer that you should, you should bet on Catholicism. You have everything to win and nothing to lose. And the reason it's a caricature is um, I, I have started to think, and this is actually since writing the book, so I'm glad you've invited me in. <laughs> I started to think that Pascal himself was sensitive to this, um, this issue that everybody raised with his wager, and it's called the many gods objection. Um, the idea is, wow, Blaze, that's his first name, and, you know, we're friends, so I'll address him that way. Um, <laughs> Blaze. Uh, how could you make it sound so simple as if the decision that faces us is a decision bet between Catholicism and atheism when it's a much more complicated decision than that? Those aren't the only two options on the, on the map, right? The, you know, there's Protestantism, there's Islam, there's Christianity, there, sorry, Judaism, there's Hinduism, there's, there's Sikhism, there's all sorts, right? Um, as one of my colleagues, uh, Ido Landau, put it to me, you know, maybe there's a God who loves every religious person, but he hates people that takes wages, right? <laughs> you know, so then how should you wager, right? You know, there's just many more options. I, I actually think Pascal may, uh, things I've read since writing the book have led me to believe that Pascal may have been sensitive to this, and his answer may have been, okay, that, hold on a minute, I'm only writing to a Catholic audience, right, to a, to a, a lay Catholic or a lapsed Catholic audience. How's that relevant? 
Well, then it then it brings Pascal closer to what I was saying to to you guys earlier, which is that um, wh- what constitutes a rational bet might be different from community to community. And Pascal only has to take into consideration Catholicism and atheism because of the audience he's speaking to. And um, the idea I had when I when I wrote the book was that we can make Pascal's wager stronger by taking those um, communal contexts into consideration writing them in to the terms of the wager so to speak and thereby circumnavigate the uh, many gods objection and the way it works is you say well there may be situations in which it's practically rational and thereby legitimate through the eyes of decision theory to treat certain options as dead to you as non-live Okay. The example I give in, in the book is when we study philosophy, we're all patently aware that there's this thing called solipsism, a view according to which, I'll say it in the first person because I'm the only person I'm sure it applies to, uh, it's a view according to which only I exist. And the rest of you guys, including those listening to this today or tomorrow or whenever you put it up, and, but you're all just figments of my imagination. I'm the only one that exists. That's solipsism. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, you can quite easily prove that wrong because you, you could be quite sure that you exist, but you can't be sure that solipsism has been true for you, right? So solipsism is a live option in philosophy. But when we're like living our lives and we're like practically deliberating as to how we should act, even though solipsism is a real possibility in what I call the philosophy seminar room, it's not a live option in our practical deliberations. And I'm interested in what makes it legitimate to treat some options as live and some options not as live. And basically, the point I make is that when the truth of a proposition would have a huge cost to you, then unless you've got overwhelming evidence for its truth, it may be legitimate not to treat it as a live option in your um, practical deliberations. And that means that, okay, maybe Pascal was right. Um, um, if you're speaking only to lapsed Catholics, then the conversion costs to Judaism, maybe even, maybe even Protestantism, would just be too high to make that a live option. Like I said, a good and reasonable God couldn't, couldn't um, condition salvation on their converting at, against such costs when it's not even their fault those costs exist. They were born into this, um, this cultural context. Um, then, yeah... Um, different people will have uh, kind of legitimately uh, different binary options put forward in front of them. Some people will have a bet between Catholicism and atheism. Some people have a bet between Hinduism and atheism. And, and many Jews will have a bet between, you know, observant, really degrees of observance, right, from, from not observant at all to, you know, super, super observant. And... Um, Therefore, what, what I came up with was this guy called Baruch Pascal Berg, the, the Jewish version of Pascal, who, who offers this wager to a specifically Jewish audience. He's not interested, and Judaism isn't interested, in converting the entire world. He's interested in, in um, advocating for uh, heightened observance in the Jewish community. So he is my kind of pastiche 
of, of Blaise Pascal, perhaps closer to Pascal than I initially uh, recognized, but uh, Baruch Pascal. There's also a, you know, Abu Blaise Ibn Pascal, and there's, you know, <laughs> Pascal Deep Singh. You know, they, they're, all, um, they're all possibilities. But, I, but the, the book, because it's for a Jewish audience, is, is interested in Baruch Pascal book. I mean, to, to ask a question that's perhaps a, a bit reductive, but I'm going to ask anyway. Um, why, why should we care? Uh, as in, there are plenty of Jews today and certainly throughout history where there was no need to rationalize belief. As in, you know, they go through, whether it's, you referred earlier to, to observance being quite mechanical, mm. or at least viewing observance as quite mechanical. I want to talk about that as well a bit later. But, you know, for hundreds if not thousands of years people just sort of went about their lives on the assumption that god does exist and and fine and like it it if i think even in to a modern jew someone who maybe identifies as, as a modern orthodox mm. um you can say you know well, god exists and therefore i pray three times a day or i learn or i mm. give tzedakah or whatever it is um but i also go to work and i drive around and i do my shopping and whatever and those two things sort of maybe interact maybe don't what's what personal benefit is there or is there a personal benefit to sort of trying to rationalize this belief, trying to go through this decision-making process to sort of come to the conclusion that A, God does exist, and B, the sort of best way to, uh, to serve him, serve him or, is to be an Orthodox yeah, Jew. Or, yeah, yeah. or in our situation, the best way to serve him is... So I, I um, first of all, I want to respond to your question in two ways, right? The, the first way is... I just endorse what Socrates said that an unexamined life isn't worth living, that, that um, there's tremendous value added to our life through thinking about the presuppositions behind the things we do, the assumptions we habitually make. Um, I think that it, it, it ends up making our lives uh, richer uh, rather than poorer. Um, and... I would add to that, that that I think there's a religious obligation to follow Socrates' advice on this. There are certain, what I would call, cognitive mitzvot. Mm -hmm. uh, it's, it's controversial. Uh, Hastai Kreskus thought there can't be mitzvot that command you to think certain things or believe certain things because according to Kreskus, you know, that's not directly under your control, what you believe or what you think. You, you, can, you can expose yourself to evidence and then hope that your belief will follow, but you don't control your belief. However, the consensus is against Kreskus. Um, the Rambam, you know, codifies as the first mitzvah of the Taryag mitzvot to know that God exists. And that does seem closer to a, a plain reading of the Torah itself, which says things like, you shall know this day and place it upon your heart, that God, you know, that God is, is real. And how, how do you fulfill that cognitive mitzvah? You can't do it without thinking, right? And, and uh, therefore I think that, you know, a, an unexamined religiosity is a religiosity that, that uh, perhaps... Um, lacks a certain amount of um, integrity, but also misses certain inter, uh, important mitzvot of, of, the, of the 613 commandments of, 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 of the Torah. But the, the second way I'd want to respond is um, less philosophical now and perhaps a bit more Hasidic. You, you talk about, you know, I, I observe and I pray and I, and I go into the shopping and I go into the work. Because if you kind of have your religious life, which is kind of... Um, uh, with you 
throughout your your rituals uh and then there's the rest of your life which basically isn't religious it's secular and um i think that's something we all naturally fall into i certainly do myself but i do see the value of being god conscious all the time one reason for that is if i'm really aware that god is real um as i attend to things in my environment i'm much less likely to be a jerk Right. You know, uh, will I push in in the queue? Will I, you know, will I, will I react angrily when someone cuts me up in the, on the road? Will I, whatever it may be. I just, if I'm conscious of everybody's being in, in the image of God, and that's how I experience the world, you know, even the choices I'll make in the shop, right? Will I care about, you know, I said that the first thing of, of, of my Torah regalach is just to be like nice, be good. Like, will I care about, um, the consumer ethics of, of how, uh, how the products I'm buying were created or made, were they tested on animals, were they made in, in, in unfair working conditions. Uh, if, I, if I'm super God conscious all the time, that stuff is, is just much more likely to have a pull over me. So, you know, and, and it's nice to live in the presence of God because God's great, <laughs> you know. So, so uh so, so those are the two the two responses I'd make. One, one's kind of intellectual. We should do we should do our very best to scrutinise our thoughts, try and make them as coherent as possible, as reasonable as possible. Um, both in terms of, in the book, I make this big distinction between practical rationality, like what can we expect it to do and thing, but also epistemic rationality. Let's make sure that we don't believe anything where there's ridiculous amount of evidence against us mm. let's make sure that we don't believe in contradictions let's make sure right that that's philosophical work i think we should all be doing i think god calls upon us to do it and the second the second side is that a, a jewish philosophy um uh, can accompany you throughout your life and and help um create a certain amount of god consciousness i talk about it as removing the intellectual impediments that get in the way of having like a really spiritual life um, you know, when we're talking about this um, examination of one's life or this mm-hmm. philosophical quest, mm-hmm. how how do you think, I mean, as you said, like the first part of your Torah was kindness. Mm. How do you think that element of kindness, maybe even kindness to oneself, mm. comes into kind of the path that you're talking about? Well, that's interesting. Are you, could you... Let, yeah, could get, well, I want to. I want to fire back a. Que- I want to fire back a question at you. Go for it. Your question has a presupposition, I think, like that. That perhaps um, if you scrutinise yourself too much, you might end up being unkind to yourself. Is that well, what you were, I, is that what you're going like, for? As in, I feel like if someone is saying, you know what? As in, like Alex said, some people can say, look, I'm cool. Like I'm good. Like I'm, I'm all good. Like I don't need to do this. I just, I get it. Like, I believe God, I'm like, I'm in. Like, I don't need to do a big, like, kind of like, um, like examination of oneself. And obviously some people, other people feel more of a kind of internal need to do that. But I think in, in, in either case, there's always a tendency to be like, that this has to be part of some kind of like mush bear, like it's almost like a, this is part of a crisis. Like I have to like break myself into pieces in right. order to kind of build back this belief. And, and I'm getting a sense from what you're saying is that this idea of like when when you're trying to make go on this make this decision and make rational decisions that sometimes it's not it's better to kind of just say look make decisions that are kind of 
worth it in your life. Yes, that's right. So, okay, now I, I, I do understand that. I, I think we do, or so, many people have a tendency to be way too harsh on themselves uh, and, f- and philosophy, thinking philosophically about God or, or, or the bases of, of our orthodox faith, they sometimes can precipitate a, a religious crisis. Like you're saying, you know, I've had emails from people who were living quite unexamined religious lives and they were quite happy. And then all of a sudden they stumbled onto certain places in the internet with, you know, skeptics and whatever, and they ended up raising questions they'd never thought of and, and started reading loads of philosophy and it, and it precipitated a crisis. Um, uh, other times, um, the, the crisis comes first and then the person turns to philosophy. Uh, but you're absolutely right that, that I, I don't think that um, scrutinising our views philosophically has to happen um, traumatically at all, right? Uh, first of all, uh, the fallibilism was that that big second part of, of, of my Torah regalachat, this type of humility where you recognise, do you know what? Um, I probably don't understand everything. Even everything, even the things I think I understand, I probably misunderstood. Uh, there, there are many things I believe, uh, and I believe with quite a lot of confidence, but I'm open to the possibility I'm wrong on any amount of those. I think reconciling yourself to your fallibilism is, is a good precursor to not allowing philosophical questions to kind of ruin your life, right? Because we're all doing our best and, and we can't be expected to do better than our best. And um, even when we, when we arrive at conclusions, they're provisional, but do they work for now? You know, and, and uh, the, what I like about Baruch Pascalberg, I wish he, I wish he had come today. <laughs> what? We're going to have him on another, another episode. episode. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. that's great. He only speaks French, so you'll have to... Okay, fine, okay, yeah, yeah, good. Yeah, okay. Um, you know, which has been a real problem with me and him because I actually don't speak any French. Imagine, so it's been... Right, it's been yeah, but thank God for Google Translate. Um, but but, but one... Is, I'm going to be really confused. Who <laughs> is this Bob Pascal thing? Um, he, one of the things I like about him, so to speak, this fictional philosopher, is he, he says, look... Finding the truth is something that all philosophers should care about. It's a really amazing value. It's a, it's a you know, and fault, you know, having false beliefs is of disvalue. Every philosopher thinks that. But, but where Pascal Berg is a bit different is he says, well, it's one value, but recognize two things. First, you're very rarely going to be able to achieve certainty about very much. That's the fallibilism we've been speaking about. Second, there are other values in life alongside having tr- true beliefs, like flourishing as a human being, having friends, having community, having, you know, meaningful achie- achievements. And I would rather have, you know, I, I say in the book that, um, that fr- there are all sorts of reasons for thinking that friendship, just having friends, the possession of friends, skews your reasoning in various ways. I talk about in the book why that should be. But I would rather have friends and allow my reasoning to be a little bit skewed because of that. I'll try and correct for it as much as I can, knowing that what friendship does. But, you know, I'd rather have friends and be so skewed than put truth as the, as the supreme value to such an extent that the only way 
to, to, f to follow that value was to live as a hermit with no friends whatsoever. Yeah. And, and this relates to your question because it, it's a philosophy that, that, that doesn't, it's not too hard on the person. It recognizes there are other things you need to care about too, like your well-being, your flourishing. Okay, if, we, if we can go back to the beginning, you know, your, your three, your three uh, torots of uh, <sighs> kindness, humility, and, and loving God, the, the first two are not necessarily... Uh, don't necessarily need God. You know, be, being kind and being humble are not things that... I, I think anyone of, of faith or of, 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 uh, of no faith would say those things are important. Mm -hmm. Do those two things lead to the love of God or is love of God sort of um, bolstering them? Um, I, 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 when, before we started recording, we were talking about how I, I mentioned I wanted to bring up uh, David Baddiel, um, who... Any listeners who aren't aware, I think sort of we all, as uh, you know, British 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 people of a, of a certain generation, sort of encountered him as a comedian and and uh, one of the writers and performers of uh, a classic song, um, "Football's Coming Home," um, but and it never has, and it never has. <laughs> well, it did for the, I mean, it did for the lionesses. Yeah, um, it did, it did sorry, I should have said that's <laughs> yeah. Right. Anyway, and that uh, was a great achievement. Very much off topic. The <laughs> um, but recently, you know, David Deal has he's in more recent times has become um, a, a campaigner uh, against anti-Semitism and mm -hmm. he's made a couple of excellent documentaries and a wonderful book called Jews Don't Count. Mm. I have to think it's very good. Mm. Um, in his most recent book... But they do for a minion. They do for a minion. Yeah, some of them. Which I mean, depends, and it depends which uh, minion. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, in his most recent book, uh, it's called The God Desire. Um, he, David Baddiel describes himself as like a, a Jewish atheist. He says he comes from, you know, a, a broadly orthodox Jewish background. Um... And again, you know, I'm, I'm summarizing and probably doing a very bad job of it, but he essentially says that his overwhelming desire for God to exist, um, his overwhelming desire for religion to be true, um, is the reason he knows that it's all a fallacy. He needs to read my book. <laughs> we'll send him a copy. David, write in, and we'll uh, we'll we'll send the book to, uh, to your house. Um, so I think I guess going back, you know, how does love of God? As a, it, do humility and kindness lead to a love of God? Does loving God lead to humility and kindness? Do they sort of work parallel? What's the interplay between those three things, if uh, there is any? Yeah, there, there definitely is. Uh, let me take kindness first. Um, Rabbi Sachs wrote a book called um, To Heal a Fractured World that I think was, uh, you know, a really important contribution to his, uh, his, his oeuvre. It's not a word I use often and I uh, <laughs> don't quite know how to pronounce Plastic. it. <laughs> he loves that word. It's so French. Yeah. I, learned, I learned it from him. Um, um, the book, To Heal a Fractured World, I like to think of it, I think it's divided into more, two, more than two parts, but I like to think of it as a book largely in two parts with two goals. The first goal is to um, animate and motivate the claim that Orthodox Judaism does and should care about social justice and, and particularly social justice uh, beyond um, the boundaries of our own communities. Uh, um, so it's, it's I, think, I think it says on the blurb, it's Rabbi's, Rabbi Sachs's clarion call to, uh, to social justice. And of course, um, Reb Shimshon Rafael Hirsch um, was kind of a pre a, a precursor to this idea 
that the Torah itself properly understood is deeply, deeply concerned with social justice beyond just in the Jewish world and we should be lightened to the nations. But frankly, it was the reform movement in America in particular that took this rabbinic phrase that meant something slightly different, tikkun olam, uh, but literally means healing the world. And they used it as kind of a, a catch-all slogan for social justice. Mm. And that played a massive role ultimately in influencing American orthodoxy or American modern orthodoxy. Many like young Israel shuls have like a, a tikkun olam officer, you know, and, and I do think to their credit, it, it is an, an uh, it's one one respect in which Reform Judaism has influenced orthodoxy. Um, so that's the first part of the book. Orthodoxy should care about social justice. The second part of the book is saying that Jews should care about more than just social justice. And I'm now going beyond what Rabbi Sachs says explicitly, but I think it's in tune with that notion that Jews should care about more than social justice is that I think we could distinguish a difference. It's quite, it's quite hard to put one's finger on, on the, the difference. Philosophers are all about trying to articulate distinctions well, and I'm going to do a terrible job here, but I would label the distinction as a distinction between goodness and holiness. Okay. And I would say somebody who, who isn't a theist, um, can manifest goodness to extreme degrees, right? And we see, you know, uh, irreligious people who are wonderfully, wonderfully good. And we see many people who claim to be religious who are not good too, right? So there's no, there's no uh, entailment from religiosity to goodness or from secularity, God forbid, to any lack of goodness. But I would say that when goodness is coupled with religiosity, with love and fear of God, it takes on a slightly different quality and it becomes like what I would call holy. And I would just say, you know, some of the people in the social justice world that we most admire long after that, long after their death are people like Gandhi or Martin Luther King, you know, neither of them were perfect human beings. They both had um, uh, issues that we could uh, criticize, but who is perfect? I mean, you know, David Amelech was, was far from perfect. Right. Um, but it's, I think it's no coincidence that their, their social activism was, was animated by a profound religiosity. I think it made something intoxicating about their goodness that I don't think they would have had had they merely been you know, social justice activists without the religious um, dimension. So that's one area of interplay between, you know, yes, you can be kind without being a theist, but when kindness and love of God come together, I think the quality of the kindness is different. Um, and the humility part, how that interacts, is that I think um, there's a two-directional two interaction between humility and love of God. The first is... That if you're not if you're not deeply humble, Rabbi Cook talks about this a lot. Rabbi Avraham Cohen Cook is that um, sometimes you're not really loving God so much as your own image of God, right? What you think God is, and it takes humility to recognize that that the ideas or conceptions you have of God are just kind of provisional approximations of something beyond you. And I think if you don't have the humility, you can't have that recognition that 
even the concepts you're dealing with right now are at best a provisional approximation. And then maybe your love of God collapses into love of an idea of God rather than God himself. So in one respect, the humility is a precursor to, to love of God. But I think it goes the other way round as well. I think that, that when you really love God, um, you see God in every creature, in every being, in every, you know, and I think that that creates um, both a newfound humility because every single person you meet is a projection of God, is an ambassador of God somehow, is a reflection of a unique aspect of God that only they bring into the world. Uh, that, 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 I think, makes it harder to treat them with arrogance because you have to learn something from them because, you know, they represent God. Um, but, but also it's going to make you more humble because uh, um, I think I just said that. But, yeah, it's going to make you more <laughs> humble because, like, you, you'll listen to them, you right. know. Um, I, I think we don't often re recognize that. Like when, when, when we fail to listen to people who have views that are different to us, even if we find them really difficult to hear, that's a chisaron, it's a lacking in our love of God because it's suggesting that somehow, you know, God didn't put these people here for a reason and that, you know, they have a role to play in our, you know, edification. And, yeah. I want to ask you about... Um, I'm quite religious, aren't I? <laughs> Terribly so. Yeah, no. Terribly so. Um, I want to ask you a bit about, um, in terms of, I guess, your, your day job, mm. um, and, and I guess looking at this book as well. I'm um, a plumber. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I think with looking at, I guess, what we're trying to do in, with our books in Magid, often we look specifically at Tanakh and we talk about the way that, you know, the... the um, contemporary literary techniques and academic scholarship of Tanakh, how that coupled with traditional rabbinic scholarship mm. on Tanakh enhances that. Mm. How do you think, or why, why do you think, that, or what does, let's say, academic philosophy yeah. bring to the world? We've talked about the Rambam and the Kreskas. Mm. What does academic philosophy bring to the world of Jewish philosophy? Well, there was a really nice Facebook post recently by um, something of a hero of mine, uh, the Rosh Hashiva of a writer, um, Rav Yitzchak Blau, and he said, uh, theology isn't dead, and he cited my book, which was really nice. And uh, the reason I, I, I say it doesn't sound very humble of me to, to be, to be <laughs> you know, uh, you know uh, celebrating that, that very high praise, is that the fact that he would say that, theology isn't dead, uh, speaks to... Uh, a fear that I think a lot of more enlightened religious leaders have that there isn't much theology going on anymore in the Jewish world. You go to yeshivas and there's tremendous, you know, you know, in the, in the Gush, and I know you've published a lot of uh, people that come from that world, uh, Yeshiva Haritzian has really embraced a certain type of academic approach to Tanakh and the Tanakh that's coming out of that institution and institutions that it has kind of spawned or influenced are amazing. And there's fabulous work going on in Gemara. There's really good work going on in Halacha too. Um, first of all, Halacha as applied to new areas like Halacha and mental health, like Yoni Rosenzweig. I'm, I'm plugging all your books right now, right? You're, yeah. You know, yeah. You'll get a commission. Yeah, thank you. yeah. <laughs> okay, thanks. Um, but, but also, you know, Another one that you've published, at least the English version, is Pinini Halakha, right? Um, um, you know, Rav Malamid's work in Halakha. There's just amazing stuff coming out of the yeshivas. But there's very little theology. 
And then when you go to university, if you go to a Jewish studies department, you think, okay, now finally I'll get some theology. Well, they tend to teach is Jewish thought, and what they mean by that is intellectual Jewish history, mm. which my, one of my teachers, um, great Catholic philosopher Eleanor Stump, she calls it museum exhibit philosophy. Mm. You kind of roll out the Rambam as a museum exhibit, or you roll out, you know, um, Crescus. And, you know, who were they? Who influenced them? You know, how, how and why were they a product of their time? That stuff's all very interesting. But when we study Descartes in a philosophy department rather than in a history department, we, we give some historical context because you can't understand the words that are being used unless you have some historical context or you're prone to misunderstand it with that. But our, our main aim is like, are his ideas good and can we be in conversation with him? It's almost, it, we almost treat him as a living thinker, an interlocutor, someone we're still arguing with. And um, I have found um, that there are very few places either in the yeshiva or in, the acad in academia, where Jewish philosophers from the past are being engaged with as kind of living um, uh, interlocutors. And I think that suggests that Jewish theology and Jewish philosophy is not going, you know, is, is going through hard times, <laughs> right? And there's a group of us in philosophy departments, and, and we're not we're not the first, and there were some really important precursors to us. You know, Joseph Stern did great work on Maimonides. Is you know recently retired. Is still doing great work on Maimonides, um, and there there are some. You know, David Schatz in in New York has done fabulous philosophy of Judaism, but it's um, Aaron Siegel at the Hebrew University, myself, uh, um, a guy called uh, Danny Rabinovitz who lives in London, Tyrone Goldschmidt. Few people, Ola Salamiak, Ola Salamiak at Shalem. We're trying now to kind of bring philosophy into conversation with uh, Maimonides, Crescus, Jewish thought in general. And the thought is, we're hoping to kind of breathe fresh life into the discipline. Um, generally, um, in each kind of age of Jewish history, there have been people who have stood up in order to articulate the principles of their faith in the language of the current intellectual climate, right? Maimonides did it for him, you know, Franz Rosenzweig did it for him, and people aren't doing that uh, much today, and that's what we're trying to do, you know, yeah. you know and, and that's the idea. But I'd also say, um, so what, one thing is it just, it's just a job that has traditionally been done and hasn't been, isn't being done much today. The second thing is I, I think uh, this, the, the tools of philosophy can be an interesting literary tool. So um, I teach a class at University of Haifa where I teach stuff on the metaphysics of time and then an English literature teacher uses all of those philosophy concepts to try and understand The Tempest by Shakespeare and some poems by John Donne and, 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 and Paradise Lost by Milton. It's really cool using philosophy concepts for literary purposes. Yeah. And I, I do that in some of my work with Midrash as well. Mm -hmm. I think Midrash is a repository of, of deep philosophical ideas and you won't find them if you, you know, you, you, you might miss them if you don't have a philosophical education. Watch this space. <laughs> um, nothing else to be said. Um, <laughs> And just, I guess, the follow-up question is, I guess, that, and again, the Tanakh revolution that we talked about, again, in, in historical context, it came very much as part of, like, well, we're now back in the land of Israel, we're building the land, we're hearing that we're walking in the foot, you know, in the footsteps of our forefathers, mm. so the way we learn Tanakh has to develop with that because it's now in front of our eyes. Mm. So in terms of, I guess, this 
Jewish philosophy revolution, mm. why now? Why is now the moment? That's a really good question, obviously, because you're professional uh, podcast interviews. <laughs> but it's a really patronizing thing when somebody being interviewed says, oh, that's a good question. <laughs> I know it's a good question. I wouldn't have asked it if it was a bad question. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I, can, I can challenge yeah. that. <laughs> <laughs> um, look, I'd like to say that it's the same thing, that it's like, oh, we've come back to Israel and we're reinvigorated. And, but actually, a lot of this work is being done in English, not in Hebrew. I have a, 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 there's a really great student at Hebrew U who's a student of Aaron Siegel's and others called um, Noam Oren, who is trying to do this in Hebrew. Uh, but it's happening more in English, directed towards an English-speaking audience. So it'd be hard for me to say that it's like, obviously a reaction to the, the creation of the State of Israel. I actually think it's a reaction to something that's happened in the world of philosophy. Uh, academic philosophy is in no way, I think, I don't think I, I would be misrepresenting things if I said that it was particularly hospitable to theism. Academic philosophy is mainly atheist today. But I'd say that since about the 1970s, for various reasons that um, would probably uh, bore your listeners and we needn't get into, this school of philosophy called analytical philosophy, basically it's come to recognise that if you're going to do metaphysics, that's to try and provide a deep theory of the world, you know, consciousness, truth, matter, whatever your final theory is going to look like, it's going to be really, really weird. Right? And, and basically all of the going theories, right, in contemporary metaphysics are like shockingly weird. And because of that, theism is now looking less ridiculous to a lot <laughs> of academic analytical philosophers. And it's one place in the university where you're throwing theism out as a potential hypothesis. Still, it raises the eyebrows. But then it, it, I think it's a much more welcome hypothesis than it was 50 years ago, 68 years ago. And, and I think that's actually emboldened a number of Jewish philosophers, philosophers who have Jewish faith to say, oh, OK, I'm going to start, you know, Interesting. you know, I think and I think that's a story more than yeah. more than the Israeli thing. I mean, is it possible I'm not, I, this isn't me trying to challenge your, mm. your idea that we only ask good questions, but uh, we'll see. <laughs> um, do, do you think the sort of the, the move away from, or even just, the, I don't know if it's a move away, we'll say move away, the move, the move away from sort of uh, religious philosophy um, is what has allowed for the, like the Tanakh revolution and the Halachic revolution and, mm. and ethics and that sort of thing that, you know, we, we were able to, as in philosophy takes up a lot of, yes, a lot it of does. brain space. Yes, it um, does. I, guess, I suppose this goes back to the very beginning. We were talking about how orthodoxy can often look a bit mechanical. Yes. Um, that we've had to sort of think about the mechanics of a religious life and uh, what that looks like, whether it be halakha, whether it be yes. sort of just going back to basics and learning Tanakh again. Yeah. Um, you know, in, in the yeshivot for generations, sort of Tanakh wasn't studied, certainly in, in certain circles. Yeah. Um, men in particular sort of don't learn Tanakh yeah. at all. Um, it does sort of like the, the lack of focus on the, on the philosophy has led to sort of a explosion of like halakhic debate and allowed us to focus on these new areas of halakha like mental health or, or mm. halakha as, as it intersects with uh, technology or the modern world in a way that it didn't necessarily 200 years ago. I'd like to say you're wrong because I don't want philosophy to be a distraction from those very important things right i wouldn't want it to turn out that that was right 
but there's probably a kernel of truth in that just in that um, um, nobody can do all things at once. I mean, unless you happen to be called Moses Maimonides or something like that. But even then, you know, it, I, I, it would be very hard to be a Maimonides today, right? F first of all, uh, we have to be realistic about what we can achieve when we are bombarded with distractions, right? Bombarded, right? Mm. It's very hard to shut them out, right? And the Rambam didn't have that. He wasn't bombarded in the same way, although he, he, we know from his work schedule that he had a lot of demands on his time. Right. But, but I don't think he was being intellectually distracted in quite the way that, that he would be if he were alive today. Um, and I, I marvel at the ability of anybody before computers to write a Mishnah Torah where you take the entirety of both Talmuds, basically, mm. and condense them into a new order. To have that all in his head, as I think he must have done, is just astonishing to me but to do that today when there's like hundreds of years more of literature right you'd have to do it the Arach HaShulchan and the mission and, and the mission of Brewer not to mention the the, the Beis Yosef and the Shulchan to have all of that in your head you know people say you know oh you haven't learned much uh, until now well don't worry Rabbi Akiva didn't start until he was 40 but Rabbi Akiva only had to learn the Mishnah and even that hadn't been written yet right <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I don't mean to put anybody. I don't mean to kind of um, dampen anybody's enthusiasm for learning later on in life. Everyone should. It's never too late to start. But um, there, there was, uh, what I'm trying to say is there was a time where people were able to master every field of Jewish learning, mm. and um, I think there are multiple reasons why that's not realistic today. But both because of the breadth, because because the Torah itself continues to grow in terms of numbers of pages that have been written. Um, and because we're living in a different um, technological time that, that I think um, has positives and benef benefits and, and, and negative positives and negatives. Um, so there's going to have to be a division of, of labor. Mm. Some people are going to do philosophy. Some people are going to do theology. Some people are going to do the, the Tanakh and some people are going to be. And I wouldn't like to think that one, th one threatens the other. Having said that, it the reason I think you, you, there may be a kernel of the truth in your suggestion is that I think that um, there's a sense in which orthodoxy can just get on with, without having an articulated theology. You know, Christianity is all about what you believe. And it turns out in the, the, the history of the church that even when there have been minor disagreements, like about exactly how... Um, uh, the second person of the Trinity relates to the person called Jesus. Um, it will make a split in the church. And like, you know, you, you, you have to be in this church, you have to be in that church, we can't sit together. Whereas we can sit together in shul with people who have a more Maimonidean theology, people have a more Hasidic theology, people have... Uh, ultimately, our halachic way of life looks the same. Mm -hmm. and, and I think that there's a sense in which Jewish theology is, has proven itself to be not so integral to the halachic process... And therefore, you can kind of get on and learn Talmud and, and, and Torah with that. And I think some people have just taken a lesson like, we can't make progress in Jewish philosophy. I think they're wrong, though. Mm. Right? Uh, I think we can make progress in Jewish philosophy. We can articulate our questions better than we used to be able to um, using the techniques of contemporary philosophy and, and uh, you know, logic and language. And, and we can come up with, uh, I think, better articulated answers uh, than, we, than we could... Uh, centuries ago by by standing on the shoulders of both Jewish and non-Jewish philosophers who came uh, before us. And my hope would be, right, that 
philosophically sophisticated psak halacha would be better psak halacha, and that philosophically sophisticated readings of Tanakh would be better readings of Tanakh, that, that, that these different areas of Torah can contribute one to the other. We just, we just need to get there. We yes. need to, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, but... So uh, the, the, thing, the thing I want to say about David Badil, what was it? Because you said... Um, yeah, it, I wonder if you can edit this in magically. Yeah. About David Badil, I, I, I wanted to say... I don't think the fact that we really want religion to be true undermines the case religion. I don't think that the fact that we have this deep-seated desire for something to be true is counter-evidence. On the contrary, I think there are circumstances in which it can be evidence. So I'd like to say that in response to, to like, there's a whole field, you could just use this somehow. There's a, there's a, whole, there's a whole field called um, Cognitive Science of Religion that tries to explain why religion evolves, uh, what, what it is about the human mind that, that makes religion evolve, and why once religion evolves, it's so tenacious in so many environments. In fact, atheism only flourishes in very, in very uh, specific sorts of societies and environments, whereas theism flourishes in many more, um, and it has proved to be very tenacious. So there's this whole area, cognitive science of religion, and they've had some success in kind of creating models that explain what it is about our brain and our brain's development that makes religion attractive to us. And this has led to both a theist and an atheist response. The atheist response are called, it's called evolutionary debunking arguments, where they say, ah, you only believe this stuff because you've evolved to kind of want to believe it, so that kind of undermines your justification for it, right? But if theism is true and God wants us to be related to him and wants us to love him and to serve him, then you should expect that like the species that he's interested in relationship with would have the cognitive machinery that kind of inclines them to you know to 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 want it so i i don't, I, I certainly don't think that the fact we want to be religious is is counter evidence it could even be evidence or it's at least neutral and there's a part in the book where i say that on a purely naturalistic darwinian account of the human nature Love, romantic love, turns out to be something of an evolutionary mistake. It's a bad strategy for human reproduction. Uh, monogamous, you know, lifelong partnership. Um, okay, it could be the case. Sometimes we, you know, our explanations to the world uh, um, confront us with harsh facts that things we cared about um, don't have the deep foundations that we thought them to have. But if you've got two theories of the world and one can preserve your very, very central intuitions and one can't, then all other things being equal, the theory that preserves your deep intuitions is in a better shape. And theism suggests that love, romantic love, really is a very important emotion. Uh, in fact, it's, it's something of a, um, a training ground monogamous love uh, for two two partners is something of a training ground for the love that each person's supposed to have for God. You know, Maimonides makes that clear in Mishnah Torah. So I would tell David Badil, um, don't, um, don't dismiss your own desire for a relationship with God. That could be God calling you, right? David, <laughs> give us a call, David. We'll talk it. We'll talk it through. That'd be great. If anyone has David Hill's number, <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll pick a time and we'll pick a place 
And uh, we'll do uh, Badil Liebens. Okay. Um, well, I guess I have a final question. Sure. Uh, I, I guess final question to think about, I mean, something for our listeners to take away. I mean, I often ask, you know, how can our listeners um, kind of take the Torah of each of our guests into their daily lives? I think some of that you've already uh, spoken about and some of, I think, in terms of your Torah would manifest itself differently in, in our listeners depending on their own lives. Mm. In terms of this idea of an examined life or thinking about the value of that and the value of um, considering um, our belief, how on, on a day-to-day life, mm. how, how would you, what message I guess would you give to everyone listening around the world, uh, <laughs> taking their Torah uh, with them uh, when they kind of take their earbuds off or when they get out of the car, whatever it is. Oh my gosh, that's a lot of responsibility, isn't it? And you have to answer while standing on one leg. So. I know. <laughs> you're doing very well. Yeah, your viewers don't, your listeners don't know that you're, you make us stand on one leg the entire oh, yeah, way. Yeah, yeah, been standing up the whole time. Yeah, in, in on one leg. Balance. Yeah, <laughs> thank you very much. Yeah, but I am looking forward to sitting down. Um, I would say, I don't know. I, I would say that in the book, I actually talk about this thing called the philosophy seminar room as a kind of a metaphor that we should all spend periods of our life deeply reflecting. Um, but I don't think we need to be deeply reflecting from minute to minute, right? Uh, there's also a value in just living uh, and, and living in the presence of God and trying to be conscious of that. I talk in other things I've written, although I think I speak about it at the very end of, of a guide to the, the Jewish understanding, Jewish uh, undecided. I speak about trying to experience the world through the prism of your beliefs. So, yeah, you believe that you're God's creature and that God exists and every breath you get from him is a gift from him. But do you experience breathing as a gift from God from minute to minute? And I think that's a really cool spiritual exercise to try and do in your day-to-day life. And I think what the philosophy seminar room can help you do from period to period, maybe just when you're reading good books from Koren, uh, uh, Magid, um, is that you can find in the philosophy seminar room license, I think, to carry on living the way that I'm describing when you're, when you're not being reflective. Because you can think, oh, am I being stupid? You know, I, I'm trying to experience the world through the prism of God. Am I fooling myself? Maybe God doesn't even exist. No, trust me, but don't trust me. Do it yourself. But when you, when you do the scrutinizing in the philosophy seminar room, you will find that that theism is plausible. It might not be overwhelming, but it's certainly plausible. And there's no overwhelming evidence against it. And therefore, the life that you're living, trying to experience God from moment to moment and trying to experience the other as in the image of God um, um, is far from a a stupid thing to be doing. Not only will it ennoble you, ennoble you, lift you up from just kindness, perhaps to holiness, but it, it has some intellectual feat. Sound all right. Like, sound like thank, thank you very, you very much. much. Thank yeah, you. Thank you. <laughs> I think I think that's all the time we have uh, for for this week. So thank you so much to, to Sam Evans for for taking the time to join us. Um, it has been eye opening and um, you know headache creating, but in a good way. Um, and we look forward to bringing you back as a uh, in the future. Thank you very guest. much. It's been tremendous. Um, and our listeners should all pick up a copy of A Guide for the Jewish Undecided. Yeah, and buy it. And buy it. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> 
That's all the time we have for this week. Thank you so much for joining us again. And a very special thank you to Rabbi Dr. Sam Liebens, a sax scholar, author, uh, and philosopher. Um, you can get Rabbi Dr. Liebens' book, A Guide for the Jewish Undecided, from coronpub.com and save 10% on your entire order with promo code podcast at checkout. Um, make sure to like and subscribe wherever and rate wherever you're listening. Uh, follow us on social media at Coran Publishers. If you want to get in touch with us, you can email us uh, at podcast at coronpub.com. Um, and until next time, this has been the current podcast, Al Regalaka. Mm-hmm.